Hello and welcome to Diving Into Diabetes, the podcast where we explore the latest advances and the best practices on individualized diabetes care. I'm your host, Dr. Ron Goldenberg, and with me on the program today is Dr. Peter Lin. Dr. Lin is a family physician in Toronto and director of primary care initiative at the Canadian Heart Research Centre and he's a well-known educator in many areas including diabetes. Our topic today is uh, how to interpret and practically implement the Diabetes Canada 2020 guidelines for the pharmacologic management of type 2 diabetes. So first of all, uh, welcome Dr. Lin and thanks for joining us today. Ron, thanks very much for having me. It's always a pleasure chatting with you. So, uh, you know, we've had almost two years now to uh, digest and uh, try to utilize the 2020 algorithm from Diabetes Canada for the pharmacologic management of type 2 diabetes. It's a little bit complex. There's many pathways. And what I'd like to do for the listeners today is just navigate through the algorithms to show how we can take this algorithm and actually implement it in uh, practice. And there's certainly been a sea change over the years because in the past we always had glycemic focused approach to managing type 2 diabetes and the antihyperglycemic agents. And lately there's been more of a focus on choosing agents that have hard outcome benefits. Uh, so with that, uh, Dr. Lin, why don't we start at the top of the algorithm and give our listeners an idea how to handle the pharmacotherapy of a newly diagnosed patient. And maybe I'll just throw out a newly diagnosed patient whose A1C happens to be about 8.6%. What are the options from a pharmacotherapy point of view for that kind of patient? Yeah, that's an important patient. And first, we have to explain that to the patient about what an A1C is, that that's sugar sticking to your blood, just like the way sugar sticks in the back of the eye. So therefore, we give it importance. And then the next thing is that that first part, we always start from the least sick patient and go across to the sickest one. But I'd like to reverse that. So in medical school, if you got an acute abdomen, the first thing you think about is it appendicitis and, you know, think about the bad things. So let's think about the bad things. So if the patient has very high sugars and is losing weight, so that's what we mean by decompensated. In other words, the insulin is no longer moving sugar into the cells, so the cells are actually starving. So in that situation, we have to give them insulin back. So that's one of the things that we just have to keep on the top of the mind. Are they losing weight? Is the sugar really high? In which case, we have to think about insulin. Now, if they're not in that situation, which is most of the time, then you think about how far away are they from the target? So let's say your target is 6.5% or 7% for that kind of category of patient, then you want to know, are they more than 1.5% higher than where you want their target to be? Because if they are 1.5% higher, you are going to use metformin, but you're going to need something else. So metformin alone will not get you there. And it's very good for us to tell them that, that you're quite far away. We'll start this, but we're going to have to add in another medication to help get you to target. So that way the patients understand you know, the future pathway. And then finally, if they're not above one5 then you could tell them that, you know, we could do lifestyle, we could do metformin, and that way the conversation would be much easier for us to have in those three buckets. So sickest people, and then number two is above 1.5%, and you said it was 8.6%. 
So we can tell that patient whether you're using 7% or 6.5%, you're a little more aggressive. Basically, this person will need more than metformin. And that way, the patient is aware what's going to be happening. And I think we should reassess them, let's say, three months time in terms of the A1C, because we need the hemoglobin to die and then new sugar will stick to the new hemoglobin. So that would be a good time frame to measure. If they are checking themselves at home, they will have a very good sense of where they're going because they will see their sugars coming down as they do the diet and medications that you've implemented. So therefore, let's not wait too long and let's try to get them to target uh, while they actually understand the pathway in which we're going to take them down, you know, so the garden path that uh, we're, we're trying to lead our patients into. Great. So some good messaging there. I mean, we can jump in with pharmacotherapy right from diagnosis of insulin if you're decompensated or metformin with another drug if your A1C is well above target. Many people have in their mind you have to give at least three months of lifestyle, but there's definitely that option of initial pharmacotherapy and even initial combination uh, therapy. And I'll just remind our listeners as well that uh, if you're giving initial combination therapy, we have fixed dose combinations that uh, allow us to minimize the uh, pill burden. So for example, if uh, that newly diagnosed patient with a high A1C also had a little microbnuria, I might start metformin with an SGLT2 inhibitor, and we're going to talk about chronic kidney disease as well, but uh, and use it as a fixed dose combination because then you're only writing one uh, prescription. So as we navigate the rest of the algorithm, uh, there's kind of two important branches. Uh, one is more based on uh, comorbidities and complications where we kind of take an outcome approach, and the other is based on the focus on an elevated uh, A1C. Uh, So let's uh, give you a few scenarios, Dr. Lin, to help our listeners navigate all the various options according to the patient scenario. And maybe let's start off uh, with a patient who has documented atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. So let's say a patient with known type 2 diabetes uh, had a myocardial infarction uh, sometime in the recent past. How how would that influence our choice of antihyperglycemic agent pharmacotherapy? And does their A1C even matter in that decision? Yeah, that's a good point. And that's something very new. So in the past, we would have said, just control the sugars with whichever agent will get their A1C down. And as you were pointing out, that was the A1C centric kind of uh, uh, way of doing things. But because we had new classes of medications that had to undergo trials to show that they're safe in cardiovascular, and in fact, we're now seeing that they have benefit in cardiovascular disease patients, we now can say not only do these drugs lower your A1C, but they give you extra benefits. So all of the drugs that we have available are good for patients with diabetes. We can use them to treat sugar and to lower A1C. That's why they're anti-hyperglycemic agents. But because of the studies, we can actually tell you certain patient types we can give you a number in terms of how good we're gonna do extra beyond the A1C. And so with those categories, they've now created this table. And I think everybody's seen this table. And remember the guidelines were trying to take all the studies that we have and put them in one place that becomes easy. So instead of looking for the one, as you described, a post-MI patient whose sugar is not well controlled, which study looked at that patient, they've now categorized it all together. And if you look at this table, and I think many of you have seen this table, the table will list the type of patient that we're talking about, atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, kidney disease, heart failure disease, or just high risk, you know, over 60 with a couple of risk factors. So they've bucketed them into those categories because we have clinical trials around them. And so you'll look underneath atherosclerotic heart disease. We now know what kind of outcomes we can promise from those studies. 
So a MACE outcome, major adverse cardiovascular events. So that's heart attack and stroke uh, and, uh, and a bypass, those kinds of things. And you could see underneath there, GLP-1 and SGLT-2 would be singled out as an in green box. And we even colored it for you. So therefore it's easy. So green means very good evidence, grade A. Uh, the sort of the pinkish one is going to be grade B. So just in case you're seeing this uh, slide pop up, uh, you'll know what the coloring is looking for. There's also heart failure outcomes. So we have some information on that, and that would be SGLT2 inhibitors for that particular patient population and progression in kidney disease, and that would be SGLT2 inhibitors. So now you can look down the column of atherosclerotic heart cardiovascular patients, and you now know that there is uh, clinical trial data that said that we should be using these agents. And in particular, for MACE, it's going to be SGLT2 or GLP-1. Both of them have good data there. For heart failure and renal progression for those patients, it's going to be the SGLT2 inhibitors um, that will be giving you the benefit. So by having this algorithm without having all the references and the articles and everything else, it's a very quick way of deciding which are the agents of these many agents that we have that can all lower A1C, which are the ones that are going to give these extra benefits that we've proven uh, in clinical trials. So for that patient that you talked about, post-MI person, you know, if you're looking at MACE outcome, you're talking about GLP-1 or SGLT2, looking for heart failure or progression of kidney it'll be SGLT2. So you're going to be playing with SGLT2 and perhaps the combination of the two of them might be the way that we go because then we'll have extra benefits from both classes of medication. So it, it helps you kind of distill down uh, all the clutter in terms of the clinical trials into what should I be prescribing for this particular patient. Excellent. So actually not that complicated. If you have ASCVD, it's a GLP-1 or an SGLT2 or the combination. What about the, the A1C looks really good. So let's say the A1C on metformin is 6.2% and that patient mm -hmm. had an MI. We have some clinicians pushing back. Oh, why would I give another glucose lowering drug if I'm happy with the A1C? What do we, how do we handle that situation? Yeah. And, uh, and, and you actually see it in the guideline, this substitute, right? There's a word substitute. We've never seen that word in diabetes guidelines, always add on, add on, add on. But now because there are differences in the, um, uh, the glucose lowering agents in terms of their trial outcome, then they're saying you should probably substitute drugs that um, don't have cardiorenal benefit with medications that have been proven to have that. And so that's why now we look at the patient, even if their A1C is 6.2%, should we swap out things? And the answer is yes, you should swap out things. Because if I can get the same A1C control, but I can give you reduction in heart failure or kidney uh, benefits uh, or reduce MACE, why not? And so this is like the idea that A1C is one half of the equations for these medications, but based on how they're functioning and how they behave, we seem to have these extra benefits. So we would never say that, you know, your cholesterol is good, so we're not treating your blood pressure, right? So both of them will have benefit. In this case, your A1C is good, but we still want to grab the extra benefits. In fact, in cholesterol now, we don't really care what your LDL is. We're going to put you on a statin anyways, for example. In this case, with these agents, you're seeing guidelines say, it doesn't matter what your A1C is, we want to get those cardiorenal benefits in there as well. So if we need to back off an agent that doesn't have uh, those protections, and then we give you space so that you can put in a drug that will lower A1C and lower all these risks, then we should go ahead and swap this. So you'll see that pretty prominently at the top that says you can actually substitute agents uh, and that will therefore give the best protection for your patient, both in terms of low 
lowering their A1C, which is great for microvascular disease, but you're also going to give them these extra benefits of heart failure, renal failure, and also MACE outcomes as well. Right. So if you're starting a GLP-1, I, well, if you're on a DPP-4, you would probably drop the DPP-4. If you're starting a GLP-1 or an SGLT-2 and you have a pretty good A1C and you happen to be on a sulfonylurea, well, you might consider reducing or stopping the sulfonylurea as well. And although we always like metformin first line or as part of first line therapy, there's this trend now to say maybe you don't even have to be on metformin. And in the new draft ADA EASD document that was presented at the uh, ADA in June of this year, they uh, kind of said you could start off with a GLP-1 or an SGLT-2. You don't even have to have metformin on board, especially if you have these compelling conditions to use one of those agents. Let's go down to the yeah, next one. Oh, Ron, just on that point, you know, like the European cardiologists were the ones, the mavericks that started that, right? They said Absolutely. in high-risk people, right? They said, you know, we we may be using GLP-1 or SGLT-2 uh, ahead of metformin. And and the rationale was, was interesting. They said, look, the metformin study that showed reduction in heart attack, the UK PDS trial was done in 1997. So in 1997, we weren't really aggressively treating all of these other risk factors, blood pressure, cholesterol, those kinds of things. These new studies that we're looking at, SGLT2, GLP1, the patients are very well managed. So therefore, these drugs are giving you incremental benefit on a well-managed patient. And so therefore, they said the evidence actually sits stronger with SGLT2, GLP1s on a well-controlled patient, well-treated patient, giving you benefit. And that's why they actually made the move fairly early to say, you know what, maybe for high-risk people, we give them the drugs that protect them from good studies, from recent studies, and then we can add in metformin later. So you're seeing this sort of change across, in other words, giving the best protection for a patient. And that's really why all of these guidelines have been adopting these things. As you were saying, the ADA is changing as well. That's a great comment. We all kind of like metformin, though, so it's hard to it's hard to. It's a darling. That. It's a darling. Uh, okay, so let's move on. You talked about these boxes on the algorithm related to underlying conditions, and the next box is chronic kidney disease. So let's uh, talk about a patient who either has a lowest GFR, less than sixty, or uh, maybe an elevated albumin-creatinine ratio. Um, so basically, fits the criteria for chronic kidney disease, where do we go with agents uh, if they're in that box of the algorithm? Yeah, and CKD is very common in diabetes. And the key thing there is that we look at EGFR and albumin creatinine ratio. So think about EGFR as the speed of your filter, and then albumin creatinine is the quality of your filtration. So albumin is good stuff that we'd like to keep, and creatinine is waste that we'd like to get rid of. So if you're getting rid of a lot of good stuff, albumin, in other words, ACR goes up, that's a bad sign. So one is speed, and the other one is quality of filtration. And if your kidneys are not well, in the original studies that were looking at cardiovascular outcomes, they noticed that the renal patients, they weren't renal patients, they were cardiovascular patients, and they were doing well. And then with dedicated renal studies, they showed that there was benefit. There was less in terms of, you know, the, uh, the albumin creatinine ratios dropping, and also the EGFR and hard outcomes for renal outcomes as well were improved. And so that's why now if you have CKD, we now have a whole bunch down there, and you'll see a lot of SGLT2 being there, because of the way they work, they actually protect the kidneys in terms of 
avoiding this hypertension inside the glomerulus. So therefore, there are benefits that are beyond glycemic control. And so therefore, SGLT2 is the one that sort of dominates there. You'll also see GLP-1 sort of in terms of a uh, grade B level in terms of MACE outcome there as well, because there was MACE outcomes uh, for them as well. But again, we're back in the box of GLP-1, SGLT2. Uh, and so therefore, we'll probably use, be using these combinations of medications uh, as we move forward in the future. Right. So I guess CKD, we, we, we kind of think SGLT2 first as an add-on uh, for the renal and potential cardiovascular protection, but GLP-1 may provide a MACE benefit uh, as well. The only thing I'll remind our listeners that SGLT2 start to lose glycemic benefit as your GFR drops well below 60. So like in the 45 to 60 range, you maybe get a 0 0.4, 0 0.5% drop in A1C. 30 to 45, you have minor A1C lowering. And below 30, you don't get any glycemic benefit. Yet SGLT2s maintain their cardiorenal protection. We know right down to a GFR of about 20 now. So uh, remember A1C is still a target. So if your GFR is on the low side and you're adding an SGLT2 in that box of CKD, you might need something else if your A1C is quite high to get that A1C to uh, uh, target. And that's where I might do both SGLT2 and GLP-1 because GLP-1s maintain their glycemic benefit disregarding uh, the GFR. So another common scenario we have in diabetes is heart failure. Uh, patients could have HEF-REF, reduced ejection fraction heart failure, or preserved ejection fraction uh, heart failure. Uh, what does the box say about a patient with established uh, heart failure and choosing an antihyperglycemic agent? Yeah, heart failure became very interesting. That's the number one reason for a diabetes patient to end up in hospital for a cardiovascular purpose is actually heart failure. Think about it. You don't have a heart attack every month, but you can have a heart failure exacerbation every month. And so therefore, those are the frequent flyers. And we noticed that there was a reduction in heart failure hospitalization from the original trials. But now we have dedicated heart failure trials uh, with uh, with empagliflozin and dapagliflozin basically saying that we can reduce hospitalization rates and cardiovascular death. And now we have the data going from HEF-REF, which is the reduced ejection fraction, so the heart doesn't pump well, all the way into the preserved ejection fraction, which are the hearts where the muscle is still pumping, but it can't accept the right amount of blood. So it doesn't take in the right amount. So yes, it can pump it out, but it's not pumping out the right amount. So therefore the rest of the body is still in heart failure. And now we actually have data going across both at the SGLT2 inhibitors are useful in this particular camp. So in the heart failure camp, we might not have to separate HEF-REF and HEF-PEF and you know, improved ejection fraction type patients. We might be able to just add in an SGLT2 inhibitor uh, and the way the mechanism that it works, people are still thinking and, and trying to figure it out. Uh, but the one thing that's good is that the renal side is also protected. Because a lot of times when you, we use diuretics in heart failure, we actually kill the kidneys at the same time. But in this particular case, you're helping the heart failure symptomatology and outcomes and you're also protecting the kidneys and they do very well. So it becomes a friendly kind of medication in primary care uh, in terms of treating our heart failure patients. And we don't have to separate whether it's reduced or preserved ejection fraction because we now have data going across both types of patients. Yeah, that's a great uh, tip for our listeners because initially the guidelines said there's really evidence in HEF-REF, but now with the newer 
trials, it doesn't really matter the type of heart failure, the patient should be on an SGLT2 uh, inhibitor. And so you don't really need to know their ejection uh, fraction, which makes it a little bit easier. Uh, one of the issues is still, how do you recognize that half, half patient to know they even have uh, heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, but maybe that's a topic for another uh, another day or another another podcast. So uh, perhaps the most common box in primary care would be the patient who doesn't have any of those compelling conditions we just talked about, but they have risk factors for cardiovascular uh, disease, whether it be smoking, hypertension, uh, dyslipidemia, obesity. Um, let's say they fit into that box of high risk primary prevention, uh, where do the guidelines uh, go in that setting? Yeah. And, and that's an area where, you know, they're high enough risk, but they haven't had an event yet. And within studies, there were pockets of these patients. And when they analyzed them, there was some benefit there. And you could see if you looked at the table, you know, for GLP-1, it'll be the MACE outcome is reduced in that population, uh, similar to that of the atherosclerotic population. So therefore, they had equal benefit. And then the other boxes are filled in for heart failure and also for kidneys. It's going to be the SGLT2 inhibitor. So if we correct the flow issue inside the kidney early on, then the renal function doesn't decline as much. Uh, and in heart failure, in people without heart failure or without cardiovascular disease, you can prevent hospitalization for heart failure uh, with SGLT2 inhibitors as well. So all of a sudden, we now have these extra benefits beyond that of glucose control. So that's why if you're over the age of 60 and you just have two cardiovascular risk factors, so be it smoking or hypertension or cholesterol or central obesity, any two of those ones or more, uh, you would qualify into that column. And I think that needs pointing out because that's a large population that we see in primary care. They haven't had an event yet, but they're at high risk. And now we have agents that will lower their sugars. So it'll help with their diabetes, but also help with uh, maybe preventing mace heart failure and, and renal progression of their, of their condition. So, I mean, it seems if you look at that uh, box on the left of the algorithm, uh, it's almost like most patients will end up on uh, an SGLT2 or a GLP-1 or the combination, yet A1C is still a target for our patients. And uh, there is this right side of the algorithm, which gives you an idea of how to choose an agent based on uh, A1C elevation. Um, let's say if they don't have obvious other compelling uh, risk factors or other conditions that we just discussed. So maybe briefly describe that box on the right side of the algorithm for the high a1c patient yeah so the right box if you've seen on a slide it'll look like houses i thought they were houses they're actually arrows um so they're directions of arrows so one going up and one going down and so uh, basically arrows going up would be for hypoglycemia what are the drugs that cause hypoglycemia to go up so su's insulin those kinds of things so they basically tried to put all the you know side effects and the features of these medications in one picture so for example, weight gain, that would be TZDs would increase weight, you know, risk of heart failure, that would be the uh, saxagliptin in particular. And then you have these big arrow coming downward, which is saying weight loss. So look at the weight loss, there's a big arrow coming down, and that would be your GLP-1 and SGLT-2 inhibitors. And you'll see when you look at the picture, you'll see GLP-1 on one side and GLP-1 on the other side of the same arrow. And why is that? Because there are some of them that have proven cardio 
benefits, right, in high-risk patients, and ones that don't have proven benefits yet. They were neutral in their studies, so safe, uh, but no benefit that they can show. And so therefore, they've divided up those medications. So most of our patients, if you think about it, we don't want weight gain, we don't want hypoglycemia, and we do want weight reduction for most of them. And we'd like to have cardio protection if we can, or drugs that have had that. So you'll end up with that GLP-1, SGLT-2 camp again, uh, mainly because they they fit into that category of weight reduction. Uh, and some of them have proven uh, benefits in cardiovascular. So I think even in our patients without the compelling thing, uh, we can still use GLP-1 and SGLT-2 inhibitors uh, because they do lower sugar. But on the off chance that they have hidden disease, we would also be giving them the extra benefits that these two classes of medications may have. And I think that's why you're going to see more of that being used in people not having those specific features. Uh, and so now we've included pretty much everybody that has diabetes within your practice uh, in terms of being qualified for a GLP-1 or an SGLT-2 inhibitor. Yes, great, valid points. I think our listeners have to be aware. A1C is still important. We kind of got away from it a bit with the uh, newer approaches, but we still want to target A1C to lessen microvascular complications. But you're right, like 80 to 90% of our patients are overweight uh, or have obesity, and you want to avoid hypoglycemia. So either way, you're still choosing the newer classes of agents that have those uh, benefits. So the last uh, thing I want to touch on uh, in the algorithm is there's a uh, kind of a separate part of the algorithm for patients already on basal insulin. And many of our patients are on uh, basal insulin, still not achieving optimal glycemia. And there's an, a new algorithm of where to go after uh, basal insulin. Can you describe that part of the algorithm for our uh, listeners? Yeah. So traditionally basal insulin, and then we try to mimic your body. So around each meal, we would give you rapid insulin. And so what's happened is that they said, do we really need to do that? So could your pancreas still produce the pulses for your meals, but we just need to give more support. So after basal insulin, maybe we should deal with the incretin problem. And now DPP-4s are okay, but we really want to give you back GLP-1 because GLP-1 will tell your cells, you know, hey, food is coming, so therefore you need to pump up the insulin and you shut down glucagon. Remember, glucagon is the one that's putting sugar into your bloodstream. So by giving a GLP-1, you can say, okay, glucagon, you can take it easy. You don't have to pump sugar into the bloodstream. And so that will help out. So that's why if we do it properly, you know, you take a once a day insulin basal, and then you take a, um, you know, once a week injection, we now have combinations, you know, of an insulin and a GLP-1 together. Uh, and so therefore you can titrate slowly. Uh, patients seem to, to enjoy that instead of having multiple things, we just have the one shot. And, and so therefore people are quite happy with that. You can also look at SGLT2 inhibitors as a combination to um, insulin. In that situation, we just have to be careful. We have to tell patients, if your sugar comes down, um, don't be so happy that you can get rid of insulin because they think they're cured and they'll stop insulin. Insulin's job is to move sugar into your cells. Uh, nobody else can do that job. So you'll still need the insulin. You might need less, but please don't stop it. Otherwise, you'll get into trouble with not enough insulin around. Um, DPP-4, you could use if you can't tolerate a GLP-1, uh, but it's not as, as, as powerful or useful. And so therefore, you could see that even with the basal insulin population, you're still looking at GLP-1, SGLT-2. And that's convenient because let's say your insulin patient also has atherosclerotic disease or heart failure risk or high cardiovascular risk, then all of a sudden we're providing the same agents that will give them protection. So not only are you going to make things simpler for them, 
in terms of you don't have to take so many shots uh, after each meal or before each meal, uh, but you'll be able to control their sugars and give them the cardiorenal protection. And of course, if that's not enough, then yes, we do have to support the pancreas maybe that can't produce the spikes around mealtime anymore, in which case then we put in the bolus insulin afterwards. Now it does increase the number of shots, but once patients get used to it, they're actually quite happy uh, because now they're able to control around each meal as well. So that is now the last step uh, that we would put in. So there's two more steps in between, which is the GLP-1, SGLT-2 story. And therefore, um, this is a new addition, and it's a, a welcome addition for primary care, because I know that we all hate, you know, extra doses of insulin. So now we have a layer in there that we can use. And the combination therapies of GLP-1 and insulin uh, make life easier for primary care as well, uh, because uh, in terms of titration and everything else, it's quite simple uh, for us to use and explain to our patients. Yeah, thanks for that nice summary of the insulin-treated patient. Um, I mean, we just commented a minute ago, we like metformin, but as an endocrinologist, uh, <laughs> insulin is also one of our best friends, and many patients will still definitely need insulin. So uh, we basically come to the end, and I think we really had a nice deep dive into the uh, pharmacotherapy algorithm for type 2 diabetes in a, a very uh, efficient and timely fashion. So thanks to our listeners uh, for joining us on the diabetes into diabetes uh, podcast we hope you enjoyed our topic today and please don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on uh, itunes spotify or google podcasts stay tuned for new releases and importantly thank you dr lynn for uh joining us all today thanks ron take care